Welcome to the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Research Learning Series podcast, which focuses on helping you become a star research scholar. I'm Mary Haas, a medical education fellow at the University of Michigan and part of the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine team. Meet my husband and fellow ER doc, Nate Haas. And I'm Nate. I'm also an emergency physician at the University of Michigan, where my research interests include the ED-ICU interface and topics like DKA and cardiac arrest. I'm bringing the education background. And I'm bringing the research background. We are excited to interview our next guest, Dr. Darren Bean. With there always being an abstract deadline around the corner, we thought it would be a timely topic to discuss how to write a winning scientific abstract. Darren, thanks for joining us today. Do you first want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in this topic in the first place? Sure, Nate. I am from Indiana University School of Medicine, where I'm currently an assistant professor of emergency medicine. I came in 2012 to be the first research fellow at Indiana University, and along with my mentor, Jeff Klein, started an outpatient VTE clinic with immediate discharge from the hospital for pulmonary embolism. Over the last several years, I have co-directed at two hospitals a PE response team, which involves submassive and massive PEs and advanced therapies for them. I currently serve on the program committee and am the co-chair this year of the Abstract Committee, along with Jillian Beauchamp. I think I've scored now for approximately eight years, but my first abstract got me interested in this, and that was at SAM, the first place I ever presented in 2005 before medical school, when I was a research coordinator at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Darren, it seems like the Carolinas has produced some pretty amazing researchers. Tell us about your beginnings starting out as a research coordinator. Well, I was fresh out of graduate school, and I was working for Jeff Klein. At the time, we called it the PE Pink Sheet. Most people now know it as the Perk Rule. And I was a research coordinator, and my job was to go and find all these patients that we could enroll. And I'm rolling down the emergency department. I've got my little research coordinator white coat on. And I walk up to this third-year resident, and I go through these series of questions. And I'm asking, well, what's the diastolic blood pressure? Do the patient have any hemoptysis? Does the patient have any unilateral leg swelling? And then I get to the final question. I says, does the patient have any synscope? And the resident says, no, the patient doesn't have any of those. And the patient doesn't have any synscope, nor does she have any syncope. And about that time... (laughs) Maybe if I could find a corner of a desk to crawl under, I think I could. It always brings me back to everybody starts somewhere. That's hilarious. I think we can all definitely relate (laughs) to that. To switch gears a little bit, tell us about the framework and the basic structure of a solid abstract. The basic structure of a solid abstract consists pretty much of four different sections. The introduction, methods, results, and the conclusions. These may slightly vary between different associations and meetings, but these are really the core four. And I'm going to break each one of these down. For instance, the introduction. This is where you really just want to simply state the overall problem and then your hypothesis. That's it. Nothing more. You may be able to do this in two or three sentences. Next is the methods. This is where you want to get specific. What kind of study did you do? How did you do it? What was the pre-planned analysis? What statistical test did you do? Did you control for bias? This is where, as a reviewer, I'm looking at what you did and why you did it that way. Next is the results. This isn't a rehash of the methods. This is where you get to tell your side of the story through your data. But it's imperative to include all the data you can include, including the statistics. Remember, if you do not tell the reviewer here, then there's no way that a reviewer will know what you're trying to say. The majority of your abstracts 
like 80 to 85% should be spent on the methods and the results. Last is your conclusion section. This is the area where it should support your results. This is also where you can put in any future directions or what else you're trying to do. This isn't the place to stretch the truth so that the reviewer will think that you have now discovered the next heart score from your retrospective survey of first-year medical students with a response rate of 5%. Your conclusions should be justified by results, and if the hypothesis didn't pan out or you will need more subjects, whatever it is, say it. Plenty of abstracts make it in every year where the hypothesis was not supported by the results. You make a great point, Darren, that most abstracts are going to follow the same basic structure. And I recently gave a talk on this as part of my master's in health professions work. And I came across a great mnemonic that was cited in a medical teacher paper by Varpio et al. in 2016. And the mnemonic is, I'm rad intro, methods, results, and discussion. And I thought that was a good way for remembering the basic structure. And I think that's a lot of great practical, implementable advice too. The one that sticks out the most is just focusing on, you know, like 80 or 90% of the meat being in the methods and the results as opposed to the intro or discussion. It's certainly something that's easy feedback to implement the next time for all of us. Sometimes one of the hardest things to do is narrow down so much information into a concise summary that's still thorough or detailed enough to make sense and grab everyone's attention that's reading it. So what sorts of tips do you have for trying to strike this balance? Nate, I think you're right. It's really hard to do these things. And writing abstracts is hard to make sure that you stay within the character count. I find it easier to write the abstract from a direct point of view. Don't try to justify why you did the study. Just tell me the problem and give me the hypothesis. This will cut out a large portion of characters. I'm always amazed when I grade abstracts how much extra information is in the introduction that could be otherwise taken out. And on the other end is the conclusion. As I stated earlier, don't try to overcompensate by making a broader picture. Simply state your conclusions. I agree completely. When it comes to abstracts, less is definitely more. Is it better to write your abstract before or after you write the manuscript? This seems to be kind of a controversial question. I know people feel strongly on either sides of the question. I think it's dependent upon the writer. I personally find writing an abstract much easier than a manuscript, but I know there's tons of my colleagues out there that just feel just the opposite, that can sit down and crank out a paper much easier than they can doing an abstract. The other thing I've heard is that if you write the abstract before the manuscript and then if things change in the manuscript, you have to be really careful about making sure whatever's in your abstract corresponds to what's in your manuscript and that you really shouldn't have anything in the abstract that's not covered in the manuscript and that the numbers definitely need to be congruent. Yes, agree. So let's shift gears a little bit to the scoring process. You've done a lot of work with reviewing and scoring abstracts for SAM. What are some advice or specifics on how the scoring process goes through? I think this is an active area of interest for many different societies and associations and annual meetings. In all fairness, one should know how they are getting scored. SAM, for instance, is now placing their scoring policy online. They grade in seven different areas, the clarity of the objects, the choice of the approach, the validity. Now, let me explain this one in a little bit more detail, the validity. This is where the type of method you chose gets graded. For instance, if it's a randomized control trial, how many subjects were enrolled? If it was a survey, how many respondents were there? And how did you control for sampling bias? If it is a qualitative research, did one control for coding and analytical framework? The next one is the statistics. Were the stats you chose the right test and were they presented correctly? After statistics, then there's the scope of work. This is where we prioritize what type of research was done. For instance, a large multi-center study is going to carry more weight than a single observational study. 
We also look at the importance of the topic and whether it's going to be innovated and important to every emergency physician, or is it only going to be of interest to a small group of people who study it and unlikely to result in any change. Finally, and this is very important, is it publication ready? You'd be amazed how many times we find poorly written abstracts with very bad grammar that are really awesome projects. And while this may not prevent you from getting in, it can be the difference between an oral presentation, a poster, or something else that's major. I think that's great advice. I know a lot of times different organizations, and like you said, SAM specifically posts the abstract scoring guidelines online, and it's amazing how helpful it can be to just skim through those prior to writing and or submitting. A common theme for reviewing abstracts seems to be evaluating the clarity, the quality, and the relevance. So what do you think are some common pitfalls you might see that might decrease the likelihood of an abstract getting accepted? The biggest common pitfall I see, Nate, are people just not following the directions. The rules are put out there for a reason, and if you're not following the rules, it's not going to benefit you. Common things are trying to submit a graph or a table when they're not allowed, or trying to use special characters to cut down on the character count. This is an abstract platform problem, and it's usually the reasons why these things aren't allowed, and when you do it, it totally messes up your abstract. So a large portion of what you're trying to present is missing. The other biggest pitfall that is common is that too much time, as I said, was spent on the introduction. As physicians in general, we want to explain ourselves, and I think that's great, and you will have all the time in the world when you're standing beside a poster to explain why you're interested in this topic and why is it important to you. But you just don't have the room in an abstract with a limited amount of characters to say why you're so passionate about this. The reviewer will see how passionate you are by how well the methods are done and the results sections that are clear and simple. Agree. What types of things can an author do to make their abstract really stand out? In my opinion, I think the best thing an author can do when they submit their abstract to make it really stand out is being concise and accurate and very well written. Just because there is a character limit doesn't mean you have to go to the character limit. If it is well written abstract and you can clearly state your intro, your methods, your results, your conclusions, that's all that we're really looking for. And it really does make a big difference if you can say all you need to say under the character limit. Do you have any suggestions for the optimal formatting? I would keep it pretty simple and I wouldn't go with any crazy fonts when you're writing the abstract. I would just use straight Arial and would avoid using any special characters. People forget this and when they change it, it shows up differently to the reviewer. As I have said and I will continue to stress, I would go online and look at the specific submission form for each place you're submitting and make sure that you're using the correct symbols, formatting, and what is allowed. That's great advice. Are there any good resources or mechanisms for obtaining feedback on an abstract before submitting it that you can share with us? I think this is a little bit of a harder question to answer. One of the best ways is to go and look for other people in your department or in your area of specialty who have graded abstract for other annual meetings. Even if it's not for SAM or ASAP, go and find someone who has graded these abstracts. As we've been talking, there's a lot of core principles that are in every abstract. I know at my institution, there are many faculty who will review any abstract that a resident, fellow, or faculty have written. It's really helpful having another set of eyes look at it. Everyone is the hero in their own story, so it makes it very difficult for the writer to see glaring problems when they've been working on it for so long. I totally agree with that perspective, and it's useful to use your local expert group as a method to get feedback. For instance, at University of Michigan, we have our MERG. It's a great acronym, I know the Medical Education Research Group, and we meet monthly. And every month we review projects that people are working on and give each other feedback on their abstracts and manuscripts and things. 
And I found that to be really helpful because many of the people in the room are medical education experts, but are still bringing a fresh perspective because they may not be experts in the particular topic of the paper. So I find that everybody's institution has a wealth of people who are willing to provide feedback, and that can be really valuable. One of the things I came across when I was preparing my abstract talk recently was the importance of a good title. So I wanted to ask you, Darren, what is your advice for creating an optimal abstract title? Having a catchy abstract title is important. This is where you can have a little fun with your abstract. This will catch the reviewer's eye if it's something funny or something witty, but I wouldn't go overboard and do it over the top. Some people disagree on this, similar to the other more controversial type stuff we've talked about before. But what do you think about a title more or less burying the lead and summarizing the conclusion as a title? I've heard mixed feedback on this as far as if you can read a title and know everything you need to know, why would you read the abstract versus others thinking it's a nice way to summarize what your findings are? Nate, that is a really good point. If you have an abstract that tells me what the results and conclusion are, I will still read the abstract because now that's a catchy title. That has piqued my interest now and I want to know more. So I have no problem if they put that in the title. I totally agree. And some of the other characteristics of effective titles that I came across are that they tend to be short, so 12 words or less. And it's ideal if you can have your title be both informative, so giving some indication of what your results were, as well as indicative, meaning having some indication of the type of research it was, such as a randomized controlled trial, but that it's important to really lead with the keywords because that's the point at which you're getting the reader's attention. It's important to remember, too, that there's so many sessions and things going on at every conference. So having a good title is key for attracting people to want to engage with your work and pick your session among all of the other sessions that are going on. Mary, you've hit on a very important point with your title. Your title is also going to carry over if it's accepted into the program online and in paper form if they still do that. And that's how most people go and find which abstract talk or poster that they're going to go see is from your title. So I think that's a very important point to make. This is carried over. It's almost like your permanent record that's going to follow you. Absolutely. Now, Darren, as I mentioned, we have some young researchers out there listening, and I think they'd be inspired by that first story that you told. So I wanted to ask before we wrap things up, do you have any other good stories from your days as a medical student and early researcher? Yeah, so there's one other. This was back in 2008, and I was a third-year medical student, and I was presenting some of the findings from the PERC validation studies, and it was in Washington, D.C., and I'm standing up there on the stage giving this talk, obviously nervous, obviously dripping with sweat, and it was about immobility as a relative risk factor for PE, and this gentleman stands up at the end of my talk, and he was a little bit angry about it. I don't know why, but said, so you're telling me in your practice that you don't think that immobility is a risk factor. And the first thing that popped into my head was, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, I, I don't have a practice. And then, of course, <laughs> this was the perfect response and everybody busted into laughter and I actually didn't even have to answer his question. That is awesome. I love it. Well, Darren, it's been so much fun chatting with you today, and you offered us some really valuable pearls that Nate and I will definitely incorporate, and we hope that our audience has found useful as they submit abstracts to the upcoming conferences. When we end our podcast, it's our tradition to leave our listeners with five key learning points to take home from the podcast. So here we go. 
Number one, follow the submission guidelines. Number two, don't justify your hypothesis with a super long introduction. Less is more. Number three, the majority of your abstract should be in the methods and the results. Number four, don't overstate your conclusions. And number five, remember the statistics. So thanks again, Darren, for joining us today. It was great to have you here. We know that we both as junior faculty will definitely take from this and implement these going forward. And I think that the people listening to this will as well. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the SAEM Research Learning Series podcast. Subscribe to our Academic Life and Emergency Medicine podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes to catch the next episode. See you next time.